0: right, so we um, are in James chapter 4, I'm just going to read from verse 6 to verse 10, and I'm going to make one, really just focus on one verse this morning. It says uh, James 4, 6, he gives more grace, God gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself, therefore, before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And we've been looking at this portion uh, for the last two or three weeks, and I've been focusing on the part, uh, the first couple of verses where God promises to us that He'll give us more grace. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Not just saving grace, but it gives us some translations like the Revised Standard Version that actually say greater grace God gives to us. Greater grace is available to you and I as we walk in obedience. God releases His power into our lives. We are already saved, but then He releases power that comes, the empowering Holy Spirit, the grace of God that is in us to enable us to live holy lives. God releases as we are obedient. It is a conditional thing. The saving grace that God extends to us is not conditional. God loves us as we are. He loves us as dirty, rotten scoundrels. He loves us as criminals under our own hat. Uh, He loves us perfectly. While we were dead uh, to Him and, and dead in sin, He loved us perfectly and He transformed our lives. And then, at the same time, He comes and He invites us into a place of repentance and says, will you come and will you give your heart to me in that sense fully? And that's kind of the invitation that we had this morning during the worship. You can choose whether to do that or not. You can resist that call in your life. But God's promise to you is as you obey Him, He will release greater grace to you. That you can see power in your life. There's a difference. All right. so we talked about those things in the last couple of weeks. Saving grace, restraining grace, and what the Puritans called experimental, experiential grace. That we actually can... See God move in our lives, in power. And so now James comes to a very practical portion of of the Scripture here, and he gives ten things that he says are evidence that we are walking by the Spirit, that are evidence that we are moving from immaturity to maturity, that are evidence that we are growing up. He's saying this is the evidence in our lives. And he says, first of all, his main point is humble yourself, That's the big point that he's making. And these other ten things really just illustrate that thing over and over again. But the big point he's making to us is, humble yourself. In other words, you can't do it on your own. (laughs) Don't think you can do it on your own because you can't do it on your own. Jesus says, will you humble yourself? Will you say that you need me? That's where it all starts. If we say, Holy Spirit, we don't need you, the Holy Spirit is not um, going to force himself upon you. He comes when you want Him to come. He's, 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 uh, the, the Scripture describes Him as a, as a dove. And uh, we receive the Holy Spirit when we are saved, but there's an empowering that comes as we ask Him. you, you with me? And this is the difference that James is um, trying to illustrate here. So we're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, we're restrained by grace, and we are empowered by grace. God's grace reigns over us. And he's pointing out to his friends, James is trying to say to his friends, that it actually was the kindness of God, it was the graciousness of God that had been dealing with these people. Remember, I talked about the life of Jonah. Yeah, last week, where Jonah expensed the restraining grace of God in his life. How did he expense the restraining grace of God? He expensed this restraining grace of God in his life while he was in the storm, in fact, God sent the storm and God sent the wind, and God sent the fish to swallow him to restrain him and get his attention so God would what he had called him to do, he would do, and that was to go to Nineveh, the people that he least wanted to go to and preach to. <laughs> And so God sends the fish and says, "Okay, I'm going to restrain you for a while, Jana. And um, He does that. And I asked you last week. I said, "How many of you have experienced the belly of the fish? How many of you experienced the storm? How many of you experienced the wind?" I have many times over, and it's the kindness of God saying, "I'm getting your attention, my son. Will you listen to me? I'm trying to invite you. Can you hear me?" And so we need to learn to how we can hear God in the storm and how we can hear God. In the, when the wind is blowing. And sometimes as uh, Western Christians, we don't like the wind and we don't like the storm. We think that somehow suffering means that we're not loved by God. No, no, it's all part of the deal. It's part of life. It's the most unrealistic gospel to preach that there's going to be no suffering for Christians. It is absolutely untrue. It's not true to the gospel. It's not true to Jesus' life, And it's only true to Western middle-class Christians who think God's ultimate thing for them is that they don't suffer in any way and they have all material blessings and it's all just hunky-dory. That's, that's not the gospel. <laughs> and if you've been preached that kind of gospel, I want to just—I say I don't believe it's the true gospel. Yeah? And I'm not attacking anyone. I'm just saying we have to look at the scripture. What does the scripture say? It says in this world you will have many troubles, but do not Fear. <laughs> Why I have overcome the world. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. This is the power of the Scripture. This is the power of the Gospel. You might feel like you are in the belly of the whale. God says, I've still got a plan for you. And as you come to your senses, God will split you out so that you can do what He's called you to do. This is the Gospel. It's glorious. Out of the ashes we rise. How many of you feel burnt? I felt burnt many times over. But God says, out of the ashes you will rise and I will do something with you. It is glorious, the gospel. And I've strayed so far from my notes now. I'm preaching a different message. But that's okay, isn't it? So, he starts in this place and he says, humble yourself. And here are the ten practical things. I'm going to deal with one this morning. And James simply says, the first thing that we do as obedience, as we humble ourselves, is we submit ourselves to God. That's the title of of my message this morning. Submit yourself to God. What does that mean? How do we submit ourselves to God? What does it look like when we're submitting ourselves to God? Well, I'm going to try and be as practical as I can this morning. The first thing I want to say is that James points us, the first thing he points us to is a command. It is a command. Submit yourself to God. Alright? And I want to... The thing I really want to stress this morning, it's a command to active allegiance. Okay? Active allegiance to the cross. Active allegiance to the cause of Christ. It is not a passive thing to submit yourself to God. It's a command that is extended to those that love Him, those that are willing to obey And those that have acknowledged their need, that, God, I need you. That's who God extends this command to. And the Greek simply means to subordinate. That's the word of Jesus to subordinate. And I want to put it like this. What James is saying is Christians need to have no doubt in their own minds and how God is in their lives need to make it plain to everybody else whose side they are on, (laughs) all right? There's an active allegiance in our lives to God's kingdom. There's an active allegiance in our lives to the cause of Christ. There's an active allegiance to all those things, and, and by definition, if we are actively engaged in that, in the things of the kingdom, we are opposed to the things of this world, and we are opposed to the devil. Yeah, there's, no, there's no shades of gray when it comes to this. We are in the kingdom of light, we are in King's, uh, King Jesus' kingdom, and we stand for everything that his kingdom stands for, and uh, by definition, we oppose the devil's kingdom. And people need to be able to see that. And so it's not a passive thing. Alex Moyter puts it in a very wonderful way. He says, the word that James uses here for submission is really a word of enlisting. Enlisting, as Colin brought that picture of the army, that we are enlisted into God's army under the banner of Christ. It's that that active. And so he says... um, the word is used to describe enlisting, taking up an allegiance to a greatly superior one, to fight under his banner. That's what it means to submit yourself to Jesus. No longer under the banner of my own life, no under, no longer living for my desires. I'm under the banner of Christ. I'm alle- my, my allegiance is to the banner of Christ. I'm in His regiment. I'm, I'm with Him. That's what it means to be submitted to Him. And this word Paul uses over and over again in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. Speaking of Jesus. For God has put all things in subjection to His feet. It's the same word. God has put all things under Christ, subject to Christ. Uh, In Luke 2, 51, we're told that Jesus was subject to His parents. Isn't that amazing? The God of all creation, the all-powerful God of glory, comes and makes himself subject to his earthly parents. He willingly says, I am under your covering. I'm under your banner. And it says in verse uh, 51, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. There's the word again, subject to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Isn't that amazing, Mary? She treasured all these things. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger... Be subject, there's the word again. We don't like it when we're speaking about church leadership, but there it is. Be subject to the elders. Willingly have an active allegiance to the structure of the church, as God has put certain people in certain uh, positions of authority. Willingly have an allegiance to that. That's what he's saying. And then he says, he defines it, he says, clothe yourself therefore, all of you, all of you in the church, with humility towards one another—that's the key, isn't it? Because if those that are leading are humble and they are under the allegiance of the banner of Christ, if those that are part of the church are humble and they are under the allegiance of the banner of Christ, no one is going to fight and jockey for position. People are going to be humble enough to say, "We need each other." I've seen this over and over and over when it comes to leadership. Those that don't want to submit actually are not humble because they want their own way.
1: My way is better.
0: I know better than you. That's all it is. It's just, it's pride. If we are mutually submitted to Christ's lordship, surely humility and lack of pride is what motivates our hearts. Surely. Romans 13.1 uh, says, We are to be subject to the authorities. Uh, again, it's talking about earthly authority. And again, hypotassia, that's the, the Greek word. That's, that's the, the, the verb. And again, the metaphor is exactly the same. Willingly have allegiance to what the, 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 the authorities in, uh, in the land. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God. I want to say the only time we disobey the law of the land is when it, does, when it disagrees with the law of God. When it disagrees with that. I had to make a decision when I was a young man that whether would I go and fight in the South African Defense Force or would I not go and fight in the South African Defense Force I decided not to fight in the South African Defense Force because I didn't agree with the system and you've got to pay the price and so the system said well I'm going to punish you in a certain way and I had to just say well that's it I take it because I choose to believe God's law above the law of this land which says this is what I must do are you with me? I'm not saying it's easy. (laughs) There's always a price. But the price of Christ is worth worth it. So I wanted to say to you this thing that uh, James is saying to us here. You choose to do that. You choose to do that. You choose to willingly come or you choose not to come. No one's going to force you. God is not going to force you to obey. He offers, he comes and he says, I want, I've got much greater grace in your life. I want you to enjoy this, but I'm not forcing you. I'm not twisting your arm. I'm just saying it's available to you. Will you humble yourself? Will you say that you need me? Or will you walk your life by yourself? And he's not going to stop us walking our lives by ourselves. And then sometimes there's more pain for us, all right? You see, submission really is a response of those that have learned humility. And I'd like to point you to. I think one of the most brilliant examples in the Scripture, Psalm fifty-one, is David's response after he had been he had sinned with Bathsheba. You know, this, if you go and read Psalm fifty-one, it's just a brilliant, brilliant piece of the Scripture. And you know the story: David sees Bathsheba; she's incredibly beautiful. She's bathing on a rooftop, and lust grips his heart. Basically, he can have anyone that he wants as a, as the king. And so he says, "I want that woman." He makes sure he finds out that she's married. She's married to a man called Uriah, and he puts Uriah who's one of his loyal, um, arm, in his army, a loyal man. who has been fighting for him all the time. He makes sure that Uriah is in the heat of the battle to ensure that he gets killed because he's already slept with Bathsheba and she is pregnant. All right? That's the story. I love the scripture. It's so honest. It doesn't try and hide anything. And so David gets found out. And this is his, this is his response. He says, wash me thoroughly from my sin. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. There's this realization in his life. God, I've displeased you primarily. I'm so sorry. Against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. There is a humility in this man. And God does deal with David over his sin. If you know the story, the baby actually dies. But look what David prays in verse 12 of Psalm 51. He says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And in verse 17, he's able to say this The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these things. It's incredible, this man. A broken and a contrite heart. You can only come to that place, you can only see that in your own life, I can only see that in my life, when we have dealt with our own sin as David did. Not trying to excuse it, not trying to brush it under the carpet, not trying to say, it's not my problem, it's my wife's problem. It's not my problem, it's my kid's problem. It's not my problem, it's the economy's problem. Uh, um, All this stuff. We like to blame other people. No, it's my problem. And when we recognize it is our problem and let the sword go through our own heart, God says, as you humble yourself and you say, yes, Lord, it's me, He will lift you up. He will exalt you. And so a couple of comments about this thing of submission. It's not always pleasant. (laughs) Submission to the banner of Christ is not always pleasant. Uh, I always love. I think... One of the national pastimes of, our, of our, our, our nation is complaining, isn't it? We complain about, about the weather, we complain about going to the train, getting on the train and going into London, and we complain about these things. My point is, you know, although we complain, I haven't ever heard anyone say who has to go into London every week, I haven't ever heard anyone get up on Monday morning and pray whether they need to go into London to work. They don't. No one prays. Why? Because they know they have to do it. Isn't that so? I, I, I don't want to do this thing. I don't feel like it. It's raining and it's cold. But if I don't get on that train at 6, I ain't got no job. If I ain't got no job, it's tic- tic- tickets for me. So I say, the pain is worth it. And I will get on that train and I'll do it. Because I have to. There's many students in this church you know, you have a course that you're studying for. Well, you might not feel like reading. You might feel like drinking coffee. <laughs> you might feel like hanging out with your mates. You might feel like doing a whole lot of stuff. The point is, if you want to, if you want to pass the course, you have to do the reading. It's the same as music. Uh, I love music. The only way that you get good is by practice. Whether you feel like it or not. The only way you get to be a reasonable artist is by practice. When you feel like it or not, you've got to practice. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and make you play like, um, I don't know, your hero. Whoever your hero is, supernaturally, suddenly you can just, without any practice, you just play drums like your greatest hero. It doesn't work like that. There are some things we have to do. (laughs) And so I want to say to you if those things are true, those illustrations are true, how much more don't we show our love for Jesus by submitting willingly to Him? How much more? I said to you last week when we simply, when we're born again, it's the easy part. I don't say that flippantly, but it is the easy part. We're not required to do anything when we're born again. All we are required to do is to believe on Jesus. That's all we do. We believe and we are saved. That's a great deal. No more fear, no more punishment for sin. All I do is I believe on Jesus, the finished work of the cross. I believe on Him and I'm saved. That is incredible. That's the grace of God that initiates. But then there's an act of allegiance that must come in our hearts as we willingly choose to say, Jesus, I'm under your banner. I'm living for you. No longer, that doesn't save us, but it empowers us, and God promises greater grace to us as we do that. And so, you show God how much you love Him by doing what is right, even though you might not be like it, when it's not easy. So when you don't feel like loving the church community, you show your love to God by submitting to His banner and saying, Jesus, I know I need, you want me to love your people. We, 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 we submit to His banner in terms of our lives in worship, through prayer and reading the Word and giving our finances, whether we feel like or not, because we know it's part of His kingdom. And so James is, that's why uh, I was just looking at Paul, and he says to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? It means when you feel like it or not, you do it. You know, it's amazing. How many of you have been in those meetings where it's just, I was a bit like this morning, but on, if, if you've been in the meeting where it's just that the presence of God is incredible, and people are just being ministered by the Holy Spirit, and there's healing, and there's just like all the stuff is happening, and it's incredible. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? Yes, have you been in a meeting like that? It's easy to obey God in a meeting like that. <laughs> Isn't it? It's easy, because why? Because He's there and you know that He's there and He's spoken and it's clear. It's not easy to obey God when you are just you and yourself at six o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold on the train. It's much harder to obey then than it is to obey when you are in a beautiful meeting with all God, God's people and the worship has just stirred you and it's, the word is coming and it's just great. you hear what I'm saying? It's Obedience is about when it is not easy. When we don't feel like it, are we submitted to the banner of Christ? It's another way, James is really trying to say this, it's another way of James saying, stop fighting God. Submit yourself to Him. It's another way of saying, James saying, stop fighting God. Remember these guys that James is writing to. They'd already experienced the restraining of God. They'd already experienced God's overriding grace. But they were really rebels in their hearts, weren't they? Because we read in 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 the chapter, it says... You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot have, so you fight, you quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask, and when you do, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So basically James is saying, yes, you are saved, but you are still inwardly rebels. Your hearts are far from God, and that's why these things are happening. And so James is really trying to say to these guys, stop fighting God. Stop fighting. Submit. When are you going to learn? He's saying to his mates. When are you going to learn? You know, when you, when you try and fight God, you're never going to win. So just stop. Just stop. Submit yourself. And it really is an invitation. So, I'm not saying submission is easy. I'm saying it is the right thing. Two, submission includes embracing difficult things. I believe this is the most profound application of this verse. Submission includes embracing difficult things. The more God's greater grace is available to you and I when things are going well and when things are going not so well. God's grace, His greater grace, is simply available to us if we just live in obedience. Now, can I, I want to say this gently. You can choose to embrace that reality or you can't. You understand what I'm saying? You can choose when it's when it's tough, when you're going through a hard time, you can em- choose to embrace it and say, Jesus, right now I choose to believe you. That your word says all things work together for good for those that love me. All things. And this thing, quite frankly, Lord, this is horrible. I don't choose this for my life. I don't want to go through it. But your word says, all things. You see, that's not fighting God. Oh, God, why do you you know how many people get angry with God all the time? Stop getting angry with God. <laughs> He is sovereign. His will is sovereign. In the end, God's will overrides. God is sovereign over all. It includes your life. It includes my life. I've said this before. I lost my mother to cancer five years ago. It was a very hard thing for me, you know. And uh, we prayed and we saw some, some evidence of healing, but she died in the end. At the end of the day, I have to say to God, Jesus, she loved you with all of her heart. She knew you. You are sovereign over her life. And you're sovereign over my life. I don't know how many years I've got left. I'm going to live them for Him. He is sovereign. You hear what I'm saying? It's a different thing to always fighting God, getting angry with Him. And you know what is the amazing thing for me, out of the Scripture, is that actually qualifies us. How many, you know, we, we are not by nature, we are not humble people. All of us are proud. All of us want to get our own way. All of us. There's no exception in the kingdom. All of us are proud. All of us want our way. And yet, Jesus says that the way to get greater grace is to humble yourself. We don't. That's the condition. The point is, as we humble ourselves, we receive greater grace. No, none of us are humble by nature. And so, God allows things to get our attention. He does. I don't know why charismatics are so funny about hard times and sufferings. Mostly, God gets our attention when things are not going well. (laughs) When things are going well, we think, oh, I don't need God. It's cool. I've got a great job. Uh, I've got a great wife, great kids, and all." whole hunky-dory. When suddenly things are not so comfortable at home and there's financial pressure and we've lost our job, suddenly we go, God, I need you! That's why James says in chapter 1, Count it all joy when you meet trials of all kinds in your life. Count it pure joy. He's saying the same thing in verse, in chapter 4 now. He's saying when that difficult thing comes, don't fight God. Don't argue with Him. Don't think that He doesn't love you. Don't say, I'm not even saying you enjoy the trial. I'm not saying that. All you simply do is say, God, I choose to believe that you are good. I choose to believe that this thing, I'm going to receive greater grace in my life, empowering grace in my life, because this thing is going to help me. Because I'm learning to humble myself. I'm learning to say I can't do it all by myself. I'm learning to say that I'm arrogant and I'm proud and I'm stubborn. And Jesus, please help me. Well, that's really my message. (laughs) I've got a couple more points, but... So, submission embraces difficult things. Submission, thirdly, it embraces refining. It embraces refining. God's refining. We willingly embrace that the things that we are going through, when we stop fighting God, we accept them that God is refining us and He's making us like pure gold. Yes? All the dross is coming out. All the ugly stuff is coming out so that we can enjoy greater grace in our lives and that we can enjoy... Him. And I want to put it to you this morning that if we learn to do that without murmuring, without complaining, without getting bitter, without getting angry at God, and we persevere with dignity through good things and through difficult things, then we are becoming more and more like Jesus. We are. Then we are really becoming like Jesus. It's like when you go through a difficult time, you think it's never going to end. But God's promise is it's only for a while and it will end. And that's why he says in chapter 1, verse 12, when James says, this is what he means, in part, Blessed is the man who has remained steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. What is that? Part of that is God's affirmation. Part of God just saying, well done. Well done, Carol. See that you persevered. Well done. And you feel the smile of God on your life. You feel His pleasure. There's nothing like the feeling the pleasure of God in your life. When you know you've gone through something difficult and you've handled it well and you feel the smile of God. I want to say over this church and I want to say over many of you, I've seen some of you struggle with difficult things in the last two, two or three years. But I see the smile of God coming upon many of your lives. Yes. This is the gospel. Greater is He that is in us than anything that is in the world. Fourthly, submission means that we bow graciously under God's mighty hand. And that's when we do that, we begin to experience this greater grace. You know, Jonah, I want to reference the story again. Even when he's in the belly of the whale, even when he's... Can you imagine what it must have been like in the belly of a a fish for three days and three nights? All those gastric juices and he must have come out with seaweed all over him and and bleached white from the kind of... Yeah, I don't know how you think about it, but he must have had some kind of physical thing. He didn't just pop out like a newborn baby. Well, maybe it was a bit like a newborn baby. I don't know. But anyway. But even when he's in the belly of the whale, God gives him one more chance. And he realizes, he comes to his senses, and he preaches the gospel to himself. In um, Jonah 2 verse 9, he says this, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And he says this, Salvation belongs to our gods. He realizes this is not about me. This is about Christ. This is about the gospel. This is about what Jesus is doing in me. And salvation belongs to him alone. And then we read directly after that in chapter 3. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh. It's only after he's come to that place of realizing that salvation belongs to God, that the whale spits him out, and then again God says to him, Now I -I 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 want you to go. And he says, Okay, I'll go. Sometimes we want... The affirmation of God, send me the second time, and we want to avoid the belly of the whale. Well, we can avoid the belly of the whale if we learn to humble ourselves. But you and I, we are stubborn, aren't we? We're all proud, we're all threatened, we all think we know better. See, God walks away from the proud. God's promise is that He resists the proud. We are not humbled by nature, but God can use all things to ensure that we come to a place of humility. John Calvin, I read this week, John Calvin on his deathbed said this as he was dying. He said, Oh Lord, you crush me. But that it is your hand is enough. It's incredible. That is a humble man. He says, even now, God, you crushed me. Even though I've got to go through this thing of death. Even now, I feel it pushing on me. But the fact that it's your hand that is over everything is enough for me. That's humility. And, I'm not going to make friends by saying this, my third point. <laughs> God can use your suffering for good. All the prosperity preachers won't like to listen to this now. God uses your suffering for good. I want to reference the story of Bathsheba and David again. It's the most incredible story. David sinned. He knew it. God needed to humble him. And look at David's reaction in 2 Samuel 12 verse 21. His servant says to him, What is this thing that you have done? Speaking to David. You fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food. You know the story? Yeah, he said that the child is ill, and so David fasts and he prays and says, Oh God, please, if it's in your will, please save this, this child. The, ta- the child dies. And then uh, this is the child of the affair that he had with Bathsheba. And then we read on in 2 Samuel 12, verse 22, David says, When the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child might live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring the child back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and listen to this, and God loved him. The grace of God is incredible. This is the extraordinary thing. When you read of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1.6, it says this, Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's incredible. The Bible never, ever excuses anything. Never excuses sin. Even the Bible records that what David did was wrong. But the grace of God still works together for good in his life, and it says that God loved Solomon. God loved him. And this is the... Uh, so, you know, when we're going through these hard things, we don't possibly know how it might work out for good in the end. We don't have a clue, quite frankly. We don't have a clue. Da- David didn't know how it was going to work out, but he trusted God... And he was under God's hands. And the Messiah is born out of the bloodline that came from this affair with David and Bathsheba. It is absolutely incredible. All things work together for good for those that love God. There's another time David counted his troops and he shouldn't have. And as as punishment, um, Samuel comes to him and says, God's going to punish you. You choose how God punishes you. And he responds like this in 2 Samuel 24, verse 14. David said, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of God, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hands of men. (laughs) He says, I don't care how I'm going to be punished. All I want to know is that God is going to do this thing, not the hands of men. I, I plead that, and so that's what happens. My point is simple, guys, every one of us. There were many sins in David's life. There were many scars in David's life. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a worshiper. He was a a man after God's own heart. That's how the Bible describes him. And this is what I found absolutely stunning. When God speaks about David to Solomon, his son, listen to what God says to Solomon about David in 1 Kings 3.14. If you walk in my ways keeping my statutes and my commandments as David your father did. Then I will lengthen your days. Isn't that incredible? God says to Solomon, this father of yours who murdered, who was an adulterer, who displeased me in many ways, at the end, God describes him and says, if you just walk like your father did, David, in my ways, I will bless you and I will lengthen your days. It is incredible. The gospel is incredible. I want to say to you, as my friends, that many of us have scars, many of us have things that we wish that we didn't do, that we hadn't said, many things that we wish that we'd never done to hurt people. We have all done things that have done all three of those things. And you might say this morning, how can God possibly show his glory through my life? there are so many skeletons in my cupboard, so many things that I've done that have displeased Him. I want to say this is the key. Humble yourself. Submit to Him. And no matter what your past is, God will overlook that and God will lift you up as you humble yourself and obey Him. This is the gospel. There is the hope for the worst of sinners. Lastly, Suffering exposes what is wrong in us. Suffering exposes our faults. Hard times expose our faults. Through hard times, we see ourselves as we really are. We all like to think that we've got it together. We all like to present our best face to the world, don't we? And when we go through hard times, what happens? The cracks begin to show. What is really inside begins to come out, and sometimes we don't like it. See, David was an amazing man. He realized that. Psalm 19 verse 1, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of God are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are other than gold and even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. David realizes these things that God has given, they're beautiful. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, who can discern his own error Declare me innocent, Lord, from my hidden faults. You see, David knew there were things inside him that were cracks. He wasn't trying. That's the great thing about David. He doesn't ever try and paper over the cracks. He doesn't ever try and say there's nothing wrong. He doesn't blame other people when things go. The amazing thing about David is when God comes to him and says, It is you. He says, Yes, God, it is me. How few of us do that. Always try to blame others. If you want to be like people like David, when the sword comes, let it go through your heart and just say, yes, Lord, it's me. Please forgive me. And God is faithful to do that. You see, sometimes other people can see things for a long time in our lives that we can't see. And it's only when we go through a hard time that we begin to see it. And I'm I'm saying to you this morning that the the way that we deal with it it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by trying to put it on the carpet, it's just saying, yes, Lord, I'm sorry, it's me. Sorry, Lord, forgive me, help me. And by the power of the Spirit, He begins to move us forward. And you know, you might need to leave some things behind you. You might need to go and say sorry to someone. I, I, you will know what it is that you need to do. I'm not saying it's different things for, for all of us. But Paul, I want to remind you again, Paul in Philippians 3.15, he says, all of us that are mature should think this way, And if in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. It is the way. (laughs) It is the way. The way forward is to say sorry. The way forward is to leave some things behind. The way forward is to live and walk in forgiveness, as RT showed us. And I'll conclude with this. If we learn to live like this, there is everlasting joy. I'm so glad about that. There is everlasting joy. You see? all the things that we have to leave behind and all the apologies we might have to make and all that kind of stuff, it pales into insignificance in terms of the joy we walk into when we do that. And this is the great lie that the devil says. The devil says, if you apologize, if you go to that person and apologize or whatever, you are going to be unhappy. <laughs> you're just going to It's going to be like you're going to be unhappy and you're going to relive that thing. You know what? The, it's, it, the completely opposite is true because the Bible promises us, as we say sorry... Everlasting joy becomes ours because we are set free. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. The exact opposite is true. Once you have tasted the joy of the Lord, you don't want anything else. And what does the scripture promise us? The scripture says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. It comes as we live really in forgiveness, as we learn to say sorry. There's an incredible joy that God releases to us. We can be free. I want to say to you this morning, you can be free. <laughs> Christ has brought your freedom, and you can live in that freedom, and it comes as you obey, you humble yourself, you say, oh, yes, Lord. So, I want to encourage all of us this morning, don't postpone with this, when you know God is putting something of His finger in your life, there's a known sin, don't, don't resist saying sorry. Bow graciously under the loving hand of God. Submit, him, submit yourself to Him. And I want to just reflect what Peter said in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you. That's the way to experience true joy when God exalts you, when God lifts you up. It's quite amazing. You know, the Holy Spirit is amazing. <laughs> I didn't know what they were, the scripture that they were um, going to use um, for this art thing. You know what I've what I finished felt God say to me during this week as I was preparing to remind all of you of 1 Peter 5, verse 10. God said over this church three years ago, four years ago, through a prophetic word, that we would go through a time of sifting and a time of shaking. But then He made this promise to us. He said uh, in, verse, in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself... Restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I want to say I see the evidence of that in this church. God is doing it in every single person's life. God is faithful to His words. That is true joy. That is true joy when God begins to restore and, ex- and confirm and strengthen and establish. And he, he begins to lift us up. That was God's promise over this church. He's being faithful he sifted, he's shaken, but now he is restoring, he's strengthening, he's establishing every single one of us.